Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octanon verb is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. My guest today is an unrepentant masculinist that believes political correctness is just another way of calling a man a coward. Jack Donovan is the author of The Way of Men, Becoming a Barbarian, A More Complete Beast, and his new book, Fire in the Dark, which is available now, and I highly recommend. Jack champions heroic masculinity and has been writing and speaking about masculinity and the masculine philosophy for over a decade. You can learn more about Jack at jack-donovan.com. If this conversation resonates with you, I highly recommend that you get his entire catalog, go to his website, grab all of his books, and listen. His content is incredible, but if you want the real impact, get his audible versions. Fire in the Dark is an incredible read, but it is an even more powerful listen. Jack, sorry for putting a long string on that kite, but I want to give you the respect that you deserve. That was a very spicy intro. There's a lot of people out there that may not understand your philosophical ideals and your beliefs. And a lot of that is based on your religion, the neo-paganism. Could you give us a little bit about what that is and how that may differ from what most people are looking at when they look at a a religion or philosophy? Well, I mean, I think my belief system at this point is basically my own. I don't Uh, really adhere to anyone else's viewpoint of what that is. And, And a lot of what Fire in the Dark is, was really having to answer the questions like, what do I actually believe? Rather than, uh, you know, like uh, picking up a book and saying like, oh, I believe exactly this. Look at a big picture. And so obviously I've practiced Germanic paganism. I've built rituals and shrines. And and, uh, I recently just sold a plot of land that I was doing rituals on for five years to a friend of mine who's still doing them out there. And that's why I sold it to him. Obviously there's, there's Christianity. There's the major Abrahamic religions and that's what everybody's familiar with. And then beyond that, really a wide range of what people believe. There's a lot of people who would say that they're pagans who are like uh, nature worshipers, really. I'm really not that. Uh, I, I don't hate nature, but uh, you know, I'm not, not a nature worshiper uh, per se. The version of paganism that I probably resonate with most is uh, probably an ancient Greek, ancient Roman version, but I'm, I'm not a reenactor. I, I don't really, I'm not following their religion exactly because it's not three, 4,000 years ago. I'm living right now and uh, trying to make sense of the world as it is. I, I like that ideal, and it, I'm very much from that same understanding where, to me, the truth is just this collection of philosophies and religions, and those are just sort of the names of what they gave it at that moment in time, at that location in the world. So whether it be the Battle of Semantics, in, in your new book, you talk about that extensively, especially near the end, where everything sort of dovetails, and that's what I really like about it, because you're able to absorb truth irrespective of source, and there are many people, especially in today's society, that cannot do that. There's a chapter in the book as you know, called uh, the Fleetscalf Dilemma. Basically, it's based off the idea because I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about Odin and Thor and so forth. Fleetscalf is the mountain shelf. It's the seat that Odin sits on where he can see everything from all time and all around the world. He can observe all things. And 
we are at a strange place in history in that we can do that right now. Anywhere in ancient history, you know, ancient Greece, they're like, I think maybe over there they practice this strange religion. Biblical times, same thing. Like, well, those guys over there, I'm not sure what they're doing, but it's something like that. Even, you know, the Library of Alexandria with all its things has nothing compared to what we have if we could just look something up online. We have the access to all the information that ever was or that, that remains of what is known over history. So we have all the religions and then we can see how they changed. Fire in the Dark, one of the main ideas of that book was to look at how these things have changed, but what stayed the same. And I did the same thing with The Way of Men because everybody say masculinity yes. is always changing. It's never the same. And it actually is. There are superficial things that change, like, you know, like what style of clothes that are wear. Like if I wear bell bottoms right now, I would get weird looks from a lot of guys and it would be seen as flamboyant because it's not in pace with the time. But when John Travolta was wearing bell bottoms, it wasn't a problem. Because these superficial things change, people think that masculinity changes all the time, but uh, John Travolta still wanted to be a tough guy. Yep. You go throughout history, and the reasons why men do these things are very similar. Men have always cared about being strong. They've always been cared about being courageous. They've always thought that their role was to hunt and to fight and to protect. And uh, all these things are very constant. And so when I wanted to look at uh, spirituality and men's spirituality specifically, because I try to stay away from telling women what to do ever, because uh, it keeps me out of, out of a lot of trouble. None of my business. <laughs> you know, when it comes to men, I look at the spirituality of men over history and all these myths together. What is the same? What are these recurring themes that happen over and over again? Because, you know, if, if any people think about uh, literalism in terms of like biblical stuff or, you know, a myth, it's not real. It, What's more real than this thing that we've repeated over and over and over and over and over again? Like this repeated theme is real. Whether you say like Heracles really did divert rivers to clean stables, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. The idea that there's this hero that uses his ingenuity and uses his strength and uses his courage to do all these things, that's a universal idea. And that's true. You know, there's truth to that that's it's eternal. And so that's what I was really looking for in this book is what, like, what's eternally true? What, what are these recurring themes in masculinity and masculine religion over and over again? One of them obviously is the Sky Father. The Sky Father, whether you're a Christian, I have Christians and Mormons who love this new book because they just see the Sky Father in what I'm writing, especially go Old Testament. You get a fire and brimstone, lightning from the sky oh, yeah. kind of deity. That's not so different from Zeus. That's also not so different from Odin in many aspects. And these themes are repeated over and over and over again. And this idea of a warrior, it's, you know, not this specific warrior. It's like all warriors. Like, what is the ideal of a warrior? And, you know, the warrior in many ways acts on behalf of light and goodness. But he is the storm. He is the storm of the sky. The heavens are the brightness, but he is the storm of the sky and brings the vengeance of heaven down upon the enemies of order and light. Obviously, then you have this repeated theme of this warrior god bringing thunder and lightning. And whether it's Thor or it's Indra or it's Zeus or Apollo and all these people that are like from the sky and have the vengeance of the sky on these kind of creepy earth creatures, which are usually serpents or dragons or whatever. But they symbolize obviously something else. Through all these religions, you also have like some kind of fertility figure. And when we're not fighting or creating, we just need to do a lot of work. I mean, that's generally what men do in life is, is stuff that's not exciting. Your taxes still need to be done. The, the fields need to be plowed. Uh, the animals need to be taken care of. And something needs to be fixed at your house. That's really what life is for most of the time. While that's not as glorious and exciting in many ways as the uh, warriors or the sky gods, it's part of human life. And so I think that's a part of the system that 
always has to be there. I absolutely agree. And there's a great part that you talk about this in this newest book. You talk about the crisis of masculinity and that identity, this lack of initiations, that they're encouraged to feign uncertainty to make them feel unique and special while almost honoring the victimhood that they stay in. It's an intentional mentality. Can you talk more about well, that? Yeah, I mean, uh, so easy to be a victim, right? I mean, that's the easiest thing in the world. Things happen to you. So it's an easy out for a lot of people, especially, you know, we have a society that's hyper empathic in excess of empathy to the point where we can't say no to anyone. We can't make anyone feel bad. And we want to make everyone feel good no matter what they do or who they are or what mistakes they have made. Maybe they could do better, but they're not. Instead of encouraging them to do better and having higher standards, we don't like having higher standards because we, higher standards make people feel bad because they don't always reach them. In fact, almost no one does. The easiest thing is to just congratulate people for being whatever they are, which is so sad. It's such a sad way to think about human life. The idea is for most of human history has been we envision what is best and then just shoot for that. We shoot for that. Realize it. Don't make perfect the enemy of the good. Realize that you're not necessarily going to get there. I mean, I'm not a great swimmer. I'm a little dense. I think if I'm going to go swim, you know, I'm not going to be an Olympic swimmer tomorrow, but that doesn't mean I can't go swim. That's true of so many things in life. You try and you, you have your priorities. You'll set them up differently. You know, I'm going to go work out tonight with people. One of the guys who probably show up is an ex-Navy SEAL and he, he'll do his thing. And uh, then there's some older people and they'll do their thing. It's like, we're all at different levels and that's fine. I think that people luxuriate in this idea that they're victims because it gives them an excuse for not doing better. Yeah. And once you have that victim mentality, you start carrying around this chalk. You're the victim so often you want to just make a chalk outline of how many times you're offended. You can't wait to be victimized by somebody else or something else. And that becomes your identity. And now once they've kind of painted themselves into that corner intellectually, they can't even get out of it, even if they want yeah, to. I mean, everything's about a narrative you tell yourself to a certain extent. They're telling themselves that they, they have this narrative and I can't because victim, victim, victim. Again, that's very comforting. It's a very safe space for them to be. If you get points for being offended, if it's a way for you to hurt somebody, because that's what it is right now. It's your weapon. It's a weapon for people. It's like, I want to hurt somebody, so I'm going to say that I'm offended. And it's a way for them to wield power. What easier way to wield power than to be powerless and say, you hurt my feelings? I have two sisters. And so I was always the boy and I was always the oldest. I could get in trouble for really anything because, you know, they're little girls. No matter how nasty they were, whatever they would do, my youngest sister was great at just, she could cry on command. She could cry on command. You know, you have an argument with her, like, that's my thing, you can't have that. That like, why are you having you know, stupid arguments that whatever kids have? You'd be authoritative and take it away from her or whatever. And then she'd like, just look at you and be like, and then start bawling. Just start crying and crying and like acting like I hit her or did something, like make stuff up. And then my mom would come and yell at me. And then like, as soon as my mom walked away, she'd be like, <laughs> you know, she knew, you know, these people who are doing that feel the same way. They're like, if I cry, then I get to hurt that person who I could not hurt in any other way. And I get to wield this power of an authority beyond me. They're bullies that, you know, they think the word that they use is cry bullies, you know, like they're, they're <laughs> cry bullies because, uh, you know, they're bullies. They, they're wielding their own violence. And a lot of people don't understand violence at all. They aren't wielding their own violence. They're just calling in violence by proxy. If you write a law, you're writing into law of violence. I mean, all laws end in violence. If I don't obey the law, someone with a gun comes and tells me that I should. 
that's how that works all these past year. Like if I don't like what you're doing, I'm going to call somebody and then the, the health department's going to come. So I'm going to tell on you and then the authority is going to come and beat you up. But I'm just a poor victim. And you're the one who's initiating that. They're using power by proxy. Yeah, they do that because like you said, they can't use logic in the conversation. They can't actually look at the facts of what's going on. And so because of that, they default to the cry baby kind of mentality or the cry bully. When you can just cry about it. <laughs> that's it's like, so they just go right yeah, to that. that. that they just cut right to the bottom line. Yeah, like, like, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're saying that it's, it's victim, but they're actually yeah. just efficient. So clearly I need to work yeah, on that. Yeah. <laughs> we're both yeah. doing the hard, the hard thing. We shouldn't have to do this. Speaking of that with what's going on, there has been a deluge of emails that have opened up about what happened with what's been going on with COVID, with everybody being put in this political correctness of, I have to wear a mask, I have to do this, I have to do that, this person's offended, this person thinks that I'm an asshole because I don't want to do this. What do you think is happening now with this huge amount of cognitive dissonance in society when it comes to what's going on really with COVID and, and the vaccines? And all that oh, stuff? I mean, I mean, you're, you're like a babe in the woods if you don't realize you've been lied to by now. If the CDC said the fire was hot, I'd be like, what's your angle? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't really think, I, I don't really trust that. I, I think they burned all the trust that they'll ever get from me because they weren't clear about anything. And they, they did massive amounts of damage that I don't think anyone can atone for. I'll dial back how spicy I was going to get with that. I think that there's levels of punishment. Whatever happens is not going to be adequate for destroying thousands and thousands and thousands of businesses and futures and knowing that you were doing it. Because I think that there was malice involved at a certain point. Even if at the beginning, everybody was just confused. I think that right. people doubled down on whatever their narrative was to great harm, great harm. And you don't know who knows what or who was controlling what. I don't have a favorite conspiracy theory and I don't pretend that I know what went on, but I know that people were lying. I know what being lied to is like. And it's more a matter of I don't trust anyone now as far as what facts are. You know, you have all these fact checkers and that's so obviously motivated by politics that that is no longer like now we can't agree on what facts are anymore because I don't trust you anymore because I know right. I know you have an agenda when you're only fact checking one political party. That's just what you're doing as if the other political party never lies because we know that that's not true. They get caught lying all the time. If you're only checking fact checking one side and you have a clear agenda you're outside of the realm of science. And major universities really have been outside the realm of science for many decades in, in right. certain categories. You know, like if you're in the fire is hot category, I think that they can still do science. And this is a confusion. People say that you don't believe in science. If I own an airplane, I believe in science. We are using science right now. Um, I, right I now, obviously believe certain things in science work. I don't believe, especially when you get into things that have to do with humans and politics, and other motivations and human social interactions and what people say about how they feel, which is all sociology. That's all very subjective. And I don't think it qualifies as science. And no, I don't believe it. And no, when I know that people are corruptible and there are other motivations, I don't necessarily believe everything that a government agency has, which used to be weirdly what the left did. The left used to be like, I think the government's lying to us and we have to get to the bottom of that. Now it's just like, have you looked at the government's website? That's where reporting is now. Have you looked at the government's website? The government has a huge history, left, right, or whatever, of lying to us and doing all kinds of crazy things we never would have imagined at the time. If you turn on the TV and you're like, oh, then what the newscaster is telling me is obviously the truth. I don't even know how to talk to you as an adult. 
at this point. Like, I can't do it. Just like you were saying, you almost have to cite your source to say what is a fact, yeah. what is true. Truly, you can have one event and see it from 11 different perspectives from the people that are doing the newscasting. And most of those perspectives are obviously slanted in a capacity to if it bleeds, it leads. If it gets advertising, if they're making money off of it in some way, shape or form, or they have some sort of leverage politically, of course, they're gonna to continue to just double down, triple down on that. Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, the role of actors. You know, actors really weren't a, a huge part of society before the 20th century. They were like traveling carnies. They weren't really like people that were yeah. respected in society at all. And not to say that being an actor is bad in and of itself, because it's, it's hard. I mean, I have to do audiobooks. I know I have some idea of what that job is. It takes hours and hours of practice and, and whatever. When you have people who are paid to make you feel something, and they're really good at it, when we know, like, when they're on Twitter or when they're on an award show or whatever, like, are they even being real? They're so influential. Why wouldn't politicians weaponize that? Why wouldn't they be like, hey, if you would like a uh, invitation to the dinner next week, yeah, there's a lot of important people going to be there. Maybe you'll get that next uh, movie deal. Uh, you know, because I don't think actors, I, once you're like a multi, 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 multi millionaire, like money is not even a motivation, I don't think anymore. People have other motivations. So you have to wonder like how many favors are being traded and maybe maybe Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't even believe in global warming, but he's like, but this is what we're saying right now. And like, you know, my publicists think it's good. My whole job is to lie and make people believe it. There's a real questionable element in our society that has a lot of power and influence of people who are literally professional liars. It's a very weird thing. People trust them. You saw like during this whole thing, like the CDC, got all these celebrities to come out and be like, hey, we should do this, guys, because da-da-da. And there's all these special messaging and whatever, and like, play your character that everybody thinks you are. You know, if you're Sylvester Stallone, be like, hey, guys, you got to do this. Do whatever you have to do to get the message across. I mean, they are propaganda tools. They knew that back, you know, World War II, you know, they were doing that kind of stuff. I mean, they sent actors and actresses from Hollywood to go out and entertain the yeah, troops and, and like yeah. give messages yeah. and read read things and they're a propaganda tool so again when people believe them or take them seriously uh, i find it very questionable it is questionable and it's sad that we as a society are willfully suspending disbelief to buy into that because of the emotion that we get from it i always say that emotions assassinate the truth and once you're in that place it's impossible to be objective especially when you're feeling good because this person's telling you oh, what yeah. to do yeah this person who I really like, who plays a character that isn't anything like who they are in real life. I That's really exactly. like the character that they play on television and this character is telling me a thing. It's very strange. There's a powerful part that you talk about in your book. So much of the book I've, I loved, obviously. There's a part where you're talking about the striker. Could you tell the audience a little bit about the striker first? And then that way I can expand on the rest of my question in regards to that. Well, the striker, I took the name because I needed a name for this warrior figure. I think it comes from the, one of the earliest Proto-Indo-European, which is a theoretical language. Pekonos is one of the earliest forms of that. Then it becomes a form of Thor up in Eastern Europe and more Slavic areas. And then you know, the name Thor goes a different direction. But basically, the striker is the ideal warrior hero and, and really the root of masculinity as well. You don't have a striker. You don't have all the other things. If you can't defend the space, you don't have it. It's kind of the root of masculinity as well. And so the striker is really what we have to, you know, as men deal with, I think, first as we separate ourselves from women. And you see a lot of guys, when they're teenagers, they gravitate towards uh, violent imagery or macabre imagery, whether it's skulls and heavy metal or whether it's video games and like Call of Duty. Any of these things, they're looking for what is this role that men do and what makes us different from women. 
they know that that's how they define themselves. That's how they feel. They feel it because no one's telling them to do that, but they're seeking that out. So they're identifying themselves with danger and death and fear and all of that. And the striker, he's the guy who goes and slays the dragon. That's, you know, the oldest story in the world, really. You know, like Gwent Hogwim or Ogwim Gwent, Proto-Indo-European. He slays the dragon or, or kills the serpent. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the oldest formulas in the world. Indra kills this dragon, Vertra, you know, free the waters of the world. Apollo kills Python. Zeus has to kill something before he can become king. He has to kill you know, this giant Typhon and this warrior slaying the serpent. Dragon Slayer is this great archetype. So that's what the striker really is. The lightning of heaven, the storm of heaven, the, you know, the warrior that goes out into darkness with the sun at his back and fights darkness and uncertainty so that everyone else can be safe. That's what the striker is, a combined archetype of all heroes. It's like the hero's journey, very much that rite of passage. And I absolutely agree with you. Without warriors, a tribe is forgotten. We have to have that. But you made a great point in the book, which I'd like for you to expand on, which is this idea that society wants the striker when this barbarian's at the gate, when they're in danger. But then when we're in the perimeter, there's the fear of the striker. There's the fear of this person, of this man, of this masculinity that has this capacity for violence. How can we reconcile that so that people understand, people we even use the pejorative like Machiavellian as if it's negative, there has to be violence to have peace. There has to be this capacity to be able to hold on to what we truly have. Why are these people missing the point on this? Well, because they're spoiled children. I mean, they get, you know, like they've always said, people who have lived in a completely protected society think that protection happens by accident and they don't deal with the ugliness of the world. And so they think foolish, silly things like, we'll just defund the police and then everyone will behave. You're not even an adult. We're not having an adult conversation, I feel like, if, we, if you're saying that. Yeah, obviously I left uh, Oregon and they did that. And I didn't live in Portland. I lived in Portland for 15 years and it was, it, it was sad what happened to it. It's a beautiful, it was a quaint, almost European city where there was no crime. It was so easy to do anything. It was so easy to live there. It was beautiful. It was clean. I moved there from LA and I was like, this is a lovely place. And now it's a garbage dump. And I think they, they've recently published that they had an 800% increase in murder in the past year, which is you know far beyond what I even would have projected. Wow, things are really going bad. And I actually think that's good because it shows the world what happens. I have a buddy who's a, is a cop in uh, Florida. The stuff that he deals with on a regular basis compared to what normal people deal with, they live in a fantasy world. I almost never have to deal with problems, a threat in real life. Very rarely do I have anything like that. A, because I don't look like a target. There's that. But most of us live in relatively safe places. And they're safe places because there is a fear of punishment that is there. Yes. People don't want the police because they're mean. They, they have weapons and they could hurt people. And sometimes they make mistakes, which has always been true. But if you don't have them, <laughs> good luck. You're just not dealing with reality. Locks on doors. Locks on doors. If you've ever watched a locksmith pick your lock, he can do it in seconds. Locks are like basically a theatrical control. Anyone can get in your house whenever they want to. The only thing that's stopping them is, A, maybe you have a gun and you could shoot them. Or the police are going to come and take them to prison. If you don't have that fear of doing that, I mean, what's to stop, you know, any of us from like, we've all had thoughts like, maybe I, should, I would like to hurt that person. Or, you know, maybe I would just take that. This person doesn't seem to need that. I'll just take it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I was raised, you know, I always like to say by hobbits and like very normal middle class people. And, uh, you know, I generally don't operate that way. Um, I signal in parking lots uh it's you know, like I, i'm kind of 
following guy <laughs> when it comes right down to it. But, um, you know, we've all had those thoughts of like what we would do if no one, if there were absolutely no penalties. These people are living in a fantasy world because they spend most of their times in universities and being coddled. People will just be nice. If you just give the people the opportunity to be nice, they'll just be nice. And uh, that's not real. Maybe they're getting a lesson in what human nature actually is versus what they would pretend it would be. There are a lot of people who would, oh, <laughs> there's no one coming if your lock doesn't work on your door. So I'll just come inside and take what I want. And if I have to kill three or four people on the way in, then that's fine too. Because there are a lot of people like that in the world. You can't fix all of them with like talk therapy. You can't say, don't do that. You got to do it. But, you know, going back to your question, obviously we need to be protected. It's always been a thing. And this is what you were getting at as far as the point in the book. It's always been a thing that like once you know a man has the capability to be very dangerous, of course, that's very scary to people who aren't. That makes them uncomfortable. We don't even think about it. I would consider myself, I'm not like tough guy, whatever. I try to do some things and I'm, you know, I can be reasonably scary. I have some skills. I don't put myself forward as the exemplar of that. If I want to get mouthy with someone who's like shorter than I am and frail, what's to stop me? Aside from police, to have people like that around is very unsettling for some people who feel they talk, they're used to talking real loud because they're protected. They're aware that they're quite fragile and that they really couldn't do anything. You really couldn't do anything to stop me if I wanted to. You're depending on someone else to come save you. You're having guys around that are scary. You would think it was comforting, but I think it's comforting for my dogs. You know, like uh, dogs want, you know, the alpha in the room or whatever, like, like they want to be yeah. around like the biggest one and be like, okay, there's somebody here. And I think that's the way people used to be. But right now I think they're so used to being protected by some outside force that it's supposed to just sweep in when necessary, that being close to people who are dangerous is unsettling. I've felt the same way. A lot of guys who are at very advanced levels in the military, who have seen a lot of combat or been to some dark places and done some dark things. A lot of them like my work and they're attracted to it and they, they meet me and whatever, but I don't want that guy mad at me. <laughs> like, if that guy's a little unstable and he's mad at me, that is a problem. I don't have the tools to deal with that. And most people don't. A lot of times those guys, if, if one of them goes off the rails a little bit, you need another one to talk to him because I'm only going to be so aggressive with a guy who I know has killed people. So I, I see how other people feel about it to a certain extent, but you also have to realize that those people provide a service and having them there is better than not having them there. So there's always this balance that I think societies have had to find between like, hey, what do the warriors do when they're not at war? Do they just rule us? <laughs> you know, like there's things that you have to think about. It's a difficult issue. And so societies have always struggled with it. And you see it in myth and in history, uh, you know, all, all the time. Well, even in the samurai in the 1500s, when they stopped invading every continent that they possibly could because they're around a men and, and war chest, they had to figure out, listen, let's make these men multifaceted. Let's give them the capacity to read a coin. Let's give them the ability to do a tea ceremony and a flower arrangement, in addition to being able to kill people with their bare hands. And that was that ethos, that philosophical notion that you very much speak about in the book, this idea of doing the right thing. And I love how you talk about, even in society today, we as men, we like to solve problems. We always hear guys say, hey, my wife or girlfriend came to me and said that they had this problem and we try to solve it. Sometimes they just want us to listen to them, which like you said, there's some of the differences there. But in society, you point out the fact that, especially politically, some people, it's not in their best interest to make sense. They don't want it to be logical because there is other motivation for them. 
they don't really give a shit if it's really the truth or not. And I think that that's something that a lot of people aren't even saying today, which it's on the tip of everybody's tongue. Yeah, well, I mean, because, you know, then you're calling someone a liar. That's dicey. That invites conflict. It's true. I really don't believe that most people care if they make sense. If they're getting points, if they're getting points, if they're getting affirmation, I don't think a lot of people actually care if they're right or if they're making sense. And also, a lot of the motivations are far different than they used to be. And a lot of guys have real problems figuring this out and seeing it for what it is because they want the world to make sense. And, you know, when you see things that they're doing to the military right now and so forth that clearly aren't about making the military stronger or more effective, their heads explode. And this goes to to dudes who are like active in the military to like just normal people. They're like, "Why, why would you do this? That doesn't make any sense. We train for the best people. That's it. And the top level or people die. And they've seen their friends die because people weren't good enough. That doesn't make any sense to them, but you have to consider the possibility that like the politicians making decisions actually don't care if you live or die. And that's like a bridge too far for a lot of people to imagine. But do you think Nancy Pelosi cares if you live or die? No! (laughs) I I think that woman sit on a mountain of dead babies uh, and and not, and like giggle. I I think she's a total sociopath. And I'm sure there are people on both sides who are like that. There are a lot of people who are like that. Let's be real. You used to like make decisions about your nation to make it stronger, but that's a nationalistic way of looking at things. And you're dealing with people who have a globalistic perspective. So they have globalist investments. Bill Gates doesn't care if America does good or not. Why? He has investments all over the world. He has more money than most countries. He can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants, all around the world. He's interested in entirely different things than making America strong. And, And so his advice is like null and void. The same is true for most of these people. It's like they serve different masters. At least when you had kings and so forth, they were deeply invested in the future of their nation because like, I'm the king of France. France must succeed. France must be strong. It's deeply tied to his identity. If America collapses tomorrow, Bill Gates is still Bill Gates. You know, he doesn't give a shit. And you have so many people. And I think many of our politicians, uh, even though they swear oaths to protect the American people, but clearly they don't with immigration and so forth, like, and you know, whatever your views might be on that, like, it doesn't make any sense not to control it. That's what a nation is. If it has no boundaries, it actually doesn't exist. You're elected by the people within the boundaries to serve their needs, not other people's needs whenever you feel like it. And if you don't control a border, then it's clear that you don't care about the welfare of your country. I think treasonous. They're living in an entirely different world with entirely different motivations, uh, thinking entirely different things. Most guys just can't wrap their minds about that. Like, well, why would you let thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the middle of a pandemic, why would you let all these people in in a completely uncontrolled way? That doesn't make any sense to anyone. Like, that's like basic elementary school, like, kids, what would you do? Uh, (laughs) Like, of course you wouldn't do that. But they don't care because they have different ends. And so that's a different, it's really time for people to stop assuming the best when it comes to their leaders and it comes to their public figures. They'll assume the worst once they smell blood in the water and then they'll go after you. We've been assuming the best, I think, for too long because I think we had reason to for most of you know American history. I think my grandfather's America, you would like to think that the people all the way up the chain were invested in America. Now, I don't think that that's true. And there's a lot of people that, to play devil's advocate, will push back on that and tell you, well, that just sounds like toxic masculinity. And I know you've, you've heard that before. 
What is your answer to that when people say things like that? Well, uh, toxic masculinity is a woman saying, I don't like something that you said. That is full stop what that means. It has no meaning beyond that. It is a control phrase. It doesn't really deserve to be dissected further than that. Uh, it, it's basically like a, whenever a feminist says, I don't like that, or I, you make me feel threatened by something that you said, then it's toxic. It's an implied value judgment, which means the person making the value judgment is actually controlling what the value is. You know, it's like the word, like the uh, prefix hyper on something like hypermasculinity. Mm. Hypermasculinity assumes too much masculinity. Well, for who? There's all these value judgments based into that. Toxic masculinity is like, don't do that thing because it makes me mad. It doesn't really mean anything. And, and they've been doing this for decades. I mean, they used to call it uh, testosterone poisoning. It was hypermasculinity, but that's too intellectual. So then it became toxic masculinity. They've been playing the same game for years, and it's just, it's very disingenuous. Well, it's political correctness run amok. And much like that quote that I made of you earlier in the, in the conversation, I think that that's dead on. I've never met anybody that's been successful or been strong in some capacity that hasn't gone through adversity in their life. When I was injured, when I was paralyzed, when I die on the table, that forced me to really look at what adversity was. It showed me what I was made of. It, it stripped away all the shit that I wasn't. Can you tell us about a time in your life when you went through a tremendous adversity that at the time you didn't even think you would be able to make it through, but once you were on the other side and you were able to look back in retrospect, you were able to find a gift or an opportunity in it that you would have never been able to find any other way? I mean, honestly, yeah, a lot of people who, have, who achieve anything usually have a, a moment or a, a story like that. I really don't. I've actually had a pretty easy life in that way. I just, I came to a lot of the conclusions that I came to just out of pure reason and just out of living life. It's not like I've had like a silver spoon in my mouth or anything. I mean, like I've had like 27 jobs or 37 jobs. I have to actually make a list to figure it out. You know, I've done crappy jobs. I mean, I, I figured I'd never own a house. I just had a very you know, like working class adulthood for most of my adulthood. And now I've gotten to a point where I'm like, middle class <laughs> you know you know, like a middle class a middle class and i don't have kids so it looks like i'm more than middle class really i think you know, just living life has got me to where i am obviously yeah you go through all that stuff where you, you can barely pay your bills and all that kind of stuff but that's baby stuff i don't want to give that credence you know it's like when people when like an athlete that's did like children of millionaires goes on and talks about their, how their parents are divorced it was so hard it's like who cares my problems are bullshit and mostly self-created. How about that? <laughs> no, that's the truth about most people. And like yeah. you said, it's all relative, but you've lived your life without compromise. How were you able to maintain that integrity with yourself without compromising or without changing? Because it would have been much easier, like you said, to just kind of take that path of least resistance and live in this mediocrity. Yeah, I know I'm messing up. Yeah, I mean, there's certain choices that I could have made at any given time that would have... Uh put me in a different direction where I'd be like, I don't know, making more money or, I mean, even really, even with the opportunities I have now, there's certain things that I just won't do because I can't justify it to myself. And there's a lot of things like that. And, and not to take away from anybody who does it, but you know, there are guys who have like big personal groups, whatever that pay them a lot of money. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just don't know what, I have never convinced myself that that was the right path for me and that that was something that I had to offer. And so I didn't do it. And obviously I've, uh, gone to some sketchy places in my life and done some sketchy things. I've always been that way. I mean, I like from when I was a kid, you tell me I'm not allowed to do something that I'm definitely going to try and do it. I, I always wanted to go to the place that no one wants you to go to. And that's got me in a good bit of trouble throughout my life. Uh, you know, as I've hung out with people that are very politically incorrect, like deeply, like on the far side of other politically correct. But what's cool about that and what's a real shame 
is that it used to be like Andreas Obsi could go hang out with the Hell's Angels. You could go out and, you know, as an intellectual or a thinker or whatever, you'd go out and uh, spend time with groups of people and, and do some things and really understand them without necessarily signing on. Now it's like if you were in a room with so-and-so at such-and-such point, you clearly share every single belief that they've ever had, which yeah. is just a weird, you know, gross kind of way of looking at life and not accurate at all. Because I have hung out with people who you're not supposed to hang out with, I feel like I have a much better understanding of why they're wrong. Yeah, I have a much better understanding of what I don't like about them and what, you know, rather than someone told me they were bad, so I'm not allowed to hang out with them, which is 99% of people. You know, like I heard that they were bad on the news. <laughs> well, of course. You know, like aside from that, which is like, okay, baby. I'm like, no, I've been in a room with that guy and I've had a drink with him. And uh, yeah, like, uh, you know, he's not all bad, but you know, like he's wrong about this. Or he's like, uh, there's this thing that I don't like about this group as in general. There are some okay people in it, but like they're just on the wrong path. And this is why I think that, you know, I have been lucky I often say that I'm really good at jumping off a sinking ship right before it sinks. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. I have some kind of like uh, intuition of like, I, I better just get out. Uh, you know, like I'm in the wrong place. Uh, like right before it becomes really obvious that it's the wrong place. I've managed to stay alive in that somehow I'm not completely canceled. I think because of that, I think I'm better for it. And I understand more than most people because I have gone to those places that they're afraid to go to. That makes you actually qualified to understand that much more than somebody else who, like you said, has given a blanket generalization or this cancel culture mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been everywhere. I mean, I, you know, like I've lived in San Francisco and uh, like been in New York City and hang, hung out in the club scene with drag queens and whatever and done all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, you know, like, yeah, I've hung out with neo-Nazis and, and like I've been everywhere. You know, I've hung out with a lot of people with a lot of different views over the period of my life. So I actually have a pretty good idea of where people are at and what they believe and what they think they believe and what they're probably wrong about. It's the, the human condition, right? And that cognitive bias and cognitive dissonance is everywhere. You're constantly looking to push yourself to this idea of oddity, to this idea of excellence. How do you stop yourself from being hit in blind spots or being caught within your own cognitive dissonance? about something or a belief? Well, I mean, I do think that because I have tried out a lot of things, I feel like I'm pretty comfortable with what I care about over the period of my life. A lot of truth is subjective to a certain extent. I mean, a lot of truth is like, you know, well, could be this or it could be that. It's based on what you want. And I think that that's really at the end of the day, a lot of what you're looking for, like, what do you think is truly good? What do you think is good and beautiful and right about the world? Are there things that are less valuable than that that have to be sacrificed to attain that? And you can go down a dark road with that as well. To a certain extent, I think what I believe is good and right is pretty consistent. I'm sure with some stupid issue like that I really don't care about, you could trap me in like a, me talking out my ass like about some subject that I don't know about. Like, I don't give a shit about abortion either way. So I could run my mouth about it and you could be like, well, did you ever think of this? And I'd be like, oh, well, I don't know. That's not an issue that I care about. There are lots of issues that I just don't care enough about. So I probably have some cognitive dissonant opinion uh, that's received about it. But the things that I really care about, I think that I've worked out to a certain extent. And I'm, I've chosen the hills I'm going to die on on certain things. The things that are most valuable and I think most important, I think, have been pretty consistent over the years. Or, or they've just been like distilled, I think, is the best things. Like think I, things I thought were important, I'm like, now I really understand why they're, I think they're important and why, what I'm not ready to bend on.
You know, like if you want to talk about economic policy, you knock yourself out. I, I, I don't know anything about that. You want to talk about is, is it better to be strong than it is to be weak? No, I'm comfortable with saying that it is better to be strong. That's good. I'm comfortable with that. Is it better to be beautiful than it is to be ugly? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is beauty important? Yes. Are men better if they try to be stronger and more courageous? Yes. I'm not going to backpedal on those things. Yeah, are men and women different? Yes. That one I'll go to my grave saying. Yeah, I'm not going to take that back. No, there's definitely, obviously, anyone can get caught in like little cognitive distance traps with things, but uh, I feel pretty consistent. I could find that I fucked up somewhere along the way with something. We all could. If I would have said four years ago or three years ago, uh, you would have heard coming out of my mouth that I'd be like, no, that is not the right way. You know, now I'd be like, you shut up. <laughs> yeah, I go back to my former self and be like, you shut up. That was stupid. And here's why. That's what learning is, right? I mean, like that's a lot of those things I, I know now because I've had enough experiences that I feel like the world has changed. You know, the world has changed. Like the, the circumstances have changed. So the solutions have changed, the potential solutions. You know, we can only see so far down the road. I mean, if you would ask anyone two years ago what was going to happen last year, <laughs> good luck everyone was wrong, you know, except maybe some people who were wargaming this, like whatever, but almost everyone would have been wrong. So everybody had to recalibrate and we all have to do that from time to time. Well, and I think that you made a great point about that, about this idea of, you know, whether it be martial arts, whether it be jujitsu or, or any of these things, these martial endeavors, these warlike endeavors, that's where we start to learn about ourselves. That's true self-knowledge. So if we're trying to go after what somebody else says is this ideal or we're we're afraid to say anything because of political correctness or whatever the case may be. It's impossible for us to truly even understand, like you said, what do we believe in? What's truly important to us? What hill would we die on? And I think that that knowledge is what allows you to be this beacon, to, to be this fire in the darkness for so many people with your work right now. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Listen, I want to be respectful for your time, Jack. Where can our listeners learn more about you? How can we support you? How can we learn more about what you're up to? Well, I'm, I'm an Instagram guy. So my Instagram is at start the world. My website is jack-donovan.com. Over the next couple months, I have a couple big projects. For people who really like Fire in the Dark, the more esoteric masculinity, the more art side of me, I, I started a website called uh, Putter, which is P-H-2-T-3-R. Like, as I said, a little more esoteric. For a more mainstream project, I started a business with my friend Tanner Guzzi. We are starting a, an online magazine called Chest. The idea is based on the C.S. Lewis quote saying like, uh, we make men without chest and expect of them, uh, you know, like industry and, and uh, so forth. Based on that, and the idea is that we're, instead of interviewing actors, what would GQ write about if GQ was still a men's magazine? What would these magazines write about if they were actually catering to men at all? And so we're going to try and go in that direction because you all have all the, you have this huge culture and, you know, obviously you're connected to it. And so many other people are, you have your Ryan Micklers, you have your Jocko Willings, you had John from Warrior Poet Society. There's so many guys out there who are doing so much positive work for men and none of them can get any good press to save their lives because of the way the system is. So like, well, just, let's just change the system and make our own. We're creating a magazine to do that. That's the plan. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's going to be a, a major project that I'm working on right now. Well, I'm excited about it too. And I'm sure that all of our listeners are excited about it as well. Jack, thank you so much for being an uncompromising voice. And I look forward to speaking to you after this as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com. 
join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.